Well, good morning. Jason said I didn't need to preach, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, just kidding. Uh, it's been uh, a few weeks since we began a series on the life of Elijah, and is it, is it probably doesn't surprise you. Uh, I love this guy. I mean, I love me some Elijah. It was about uh, seven years ago that my wife Victoria and I, we traveled up to Seattle on vacation to visit one of our childhood friends who pastors a church up there, and we were pregnant at the time with our first child, but we didn't have a name picked out just yet. We didn't know if it was going to be our boy or a girl, so we hadn't gotten that far. But while I was at my friend's house, I was in a study, and I saw a book on his shelf by Chuck Swindoll on the life of Elijah. And I said, that looks good. And I grabbed it, and I started reading it that week, and I finished it the next week. And we got home, and I told my wife, I said, if this baby ends up being a boy, I want to name him Elijah. I was so just moved by the faith and the boldness and the intensity of Elijah, so much so that my heart was to name our firstborn son after this guy. And as Roger has mentioned a few weeks ago when we began, Elijah is one of the more unique figures we have in our Bible. He, he seemingly appears out of nowhere in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17, around roughly 860 B.C. And he comes at a time where Israel is in total disarray. There's been civil war. You have Israel and Judah. Israel in the north has turned from God. They have an awful king named Ahab. And this is the world in which Elijah lives in. And he shows up out of nowhere. And he knocks on the door of Ahab in chapter 17, verse 1. And this is what he says. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither rain nor dew in these years except by my word. Door shut, disappear, drought begins. And so we pick up our story this morning three and a half years later. At the beginning of chapter 18, Elijah's been being prepared by God for a time as such as this. And he comes to Elijah and he says, it's time to go back. It's time to go back to Ahab. And we read that in verse 1. It says, now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. So Elijah, in the wilderness, begins his journey back to the palace in Samaria. And around that same time, Ahab and his trusted palace administrator, Obadiah, they are leaving the palace to go on a journey away. Because the drought has become so terrible over these three and a half years that even the king is going out to search for food and for water. And so he and Obadiah go out, and they split off, and Obadiah has a chance encounter with our guy, Elijah. But before we get to this encounter, I want to talk a little bit about this man named Obadiah. Because the text spends some time on him. Obadiah's name means servant of Jehovah. And what we learn about Obadiah is he is a true follower of God, of the true God, of Yahweh. 
And yet he works as the palace administrator under the evil king Ahab. So he had an allegiance to his earthly boss, Ahab, and he had an allegiance to his heavenly boss, God, that seemed to put him in this place of tension and conflict. And I'm sure that probably resonates with a number of people here this morning. You are a true follower of God, and you want nothing more than to honor God in all that you do. And God has placed you under the authority of a godless leader, maybe, who has no regard for your God. And this is a difficult position. This is a difficult place to find yourself. And and there are times where you have to stand up, step out, hit the eject button, remove yourself from that position. But it's also important to recognize that there are oftentimes God has strategically placed you there in that battle to protect those whom you oversee and lead and to influence those above you. Because what we find out in verses 7 through 16 is God had used Obadiah and his influence and his position to save 100 of the prophets of God while they were being chased after to be killed by Queen Jezebel. It was through Obadiah's secret work that he was, he, where he put these prophets in caves to which he saved them. And so there are times where you are called to stand in that tension and to serve God even when your earthly boss is not a God-fearer. And this brings us to verses 7 through 16, which is Obadiah's encounter with Elijah. And for the sake of time, I'm going I'm to summarize it. And so they, they, essentially, here's what happens. They meet out on the road, and Obadiah sees Elijah, and he knows right away who this guy is. I mean, Elijah is the most wanted man in Israel. His face is on every you know, post and milk carton you can find, all right? This is the guy. And so Obadiah recognizes who it is, and he recognizes that Elijah is a true prophet of the Lord. So he sees them, he sees him, and he falls down on his face. And Elijah looks at him and he says, Go tell Ahab I'm back. Go let him know I'm here. And Obadiah is not thrilled with this request. He's like, Time out, Elijah! They're killing the prophets of God. You're the most wanted prophet. And you want me to go to Jezebel. You want me to go to Ahab and say, oh, craziest thing happened. I'm out on the road. Bumped into Elijah. Can you believe it? Okay. Talk to you later. That's not going to go well. Because he says, because here's what's going to happen, Elijah. I'm going to bring him to where you are. And God, the spirit of Yahweh, is going to remove you through some miraculous thing. And they're going to go, where's Elijah? And he's going to go, I don't know. And they're going to kill me. So no thanks, Elijah. Tell me what plan B is. Okay? To which Elijah, in verse 16, lets him know, I came to see Ahab. Go get him. And let him know where I'm at. And so after three and a half years of being apart, the the king with no shame and the prophet with no fear are face to face once more. And Ahab sees his nemesis, the hated Elijah. And in verse 17, he greets him with this. Is this you, you troubler of Israel? 
Is this you? Ahab's contempt for Elijah is palpable. You can just feel it. He hates him, and he blames him for the drought. And what's interesting is, is, is if you read this, I've noticed that this is people's response oftentimes when they are in rebellion against God. Oftentimes when someone is in rebellion against God, when their circumstances head south, when things go a negative direction, what do they do? They blame people. They lash out in anger and they blame others' people instead of humbly acknowledging and repenting of their sin. They blame the one who exposes them of it. See, Elijah is not the troubler of Israel, but he is a troubler to Ahab because he exposes his sin. He shines a light in the dark places of Ahab's life. And we see this in Elijah's response. Elijah says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have. Because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Remember, this is the king. And Elijah looks at him and says, you are wrong. I'm not the problem, you are. You have forsaken the God of Israel and you have turned to the Baals. And you're getting what you deserve. One thing that's important to remember, contextually, Israel were the only people, this is the only people at this time who were called on to be monotheist. They are a monotheistic people. They are called on to be a one God people. All the cultures surrounding them are polytheistic. And so these foreign gods and these foreign idols always served as a temptation for Israel. A temptation that they would turn away from their God and turn to other gods and incorporate other gods in their worship. This was the world in which they lived. This is the air in which they breathed. And it was always a temptation. And when you think about the day and age in which we live, we, not, we may not worship little statues of Baal or at the, the pole, Asherah's pole, but we still struggle with idolatry. We most certainly struggle with idolatry. In the book, Counterfeit Gods, Pastor Tim Keller describes modern-day idolatry this way. He says, what thing, if you lost it, would almost mean that you would lose the will to live? What thing lost, gone from your life, would mean that almost all value and significance, identity and worth, would be drained out of your life? Whatever that thing is, the Bible calls it an idol. It's an alternate God. It's a counterfeit God. And this temptation to turn to idolatry, to remove God from his place as our Lord and Savior and as the authority, was something that was always an issue for Israel, and it's an issue for each one of us, myself included. We all struggle with idolatry. It just looks different. We might idolize our spouse or idolize someone that we want to be our spouse. We idolize our kids. 
We idolize our jobs. We idolize our 401k. We idolize our position, our neighborhood, our influence. We find so many different things to idolize, so many different false gods to pursue. The great theologian John Calvin once wrote that the human heart is an idol factory. It's an idol factory. And so the real question is not, do you struggle with idolatry? You do. The question is, do you recognize what it is you struggle with? Do you go before the Lord with that and do you continually turn from it? And what I find interesting about this aspect of idolatry, both in the scriptures and in our day and age, is that it is rarely something that just comes out of the blue, right? It's rarely something that just instantaneously, you're like, I'm turning from God and I'm turning to idols. No, idolatry is a slow burn. Idolatry is something that is birthed from little compromises and from believing lies that you are fed. Think of it this way. Let me illustrate this way. Imagine that your life is like a house. The problem is not that you shut the front door on God. The problem is that you leave it open for others to come in. It's not that you shut the door on God. It's that you fail to close it after the true God comes in. And it becomes populated with idols and false gods who the enemy uses to make so much noise in your life that you can no longer discern the voice of God. And so because the heart is an idol factory, and because we are all prone to idolatry, we must always be on guard against it. We must always be confessing it. We must always be turning from it. And Israel is such a great example in this. Because when you think about the nation of Israel, it's not that they set out to forsake God. You realize that, right? They didn't set out on a mission to turn their back against God. They just failed to keep him first. They failed to keep him first. They failed to shut the doors on the false idols and the counterfeit gods that surrounded them, the ones that God had warned them about. And they were thus lured into an existence far from the one they were created to live. So much so that we read in verse 19 that Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, who has been killing the prophets of God, has put 400 prophets of Asherah to eat at her table. Asherah was a, was a goddess from Phoenicia, where Jezebel was from. So she incorporated Asherah into worship. And to eat at Jezebel's table is just another way of saying they were government employees. The ministry of the prophets of Asherah are being subsidized by Israel. I want you to let that set in. They're being paid for by Israel. Just roughly 100 years after the death of King David, this is where Israel finds themselves. It's just unbelievable. It's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. 100 years after David, the king and queen of Israel are now killing God's prophets and paying for Asherahs. That's the world that Elijah's in at this point. And God has had enough. 
God says, enough. It's time for a showdown. God v. Baal. And Elijah's dictating these terms to Ahab, and he picks an interesting spot for the duel. He picks Mount Carmel. Now, this was a sacred site for Baal worshipers. It was a place where there was a lot of thunder and lightning, which Baal worshipers viewed as being signs of, of Baal, or things that Baal controlled. Carmel means the garden land, and it's a fertile area. So in the minds of many, this is, this is Baal's home turf. God's saying, I'm going to come on your turf and let you know that I own it all. I own it all. And so Ahab sends out a message to the prophets of Baal, to the sons of Israel. And over time, they gather there at Mount Carmel. And Ahab comes in, probably carried on a portable throne, surrounded by his cabinet and his counselors and the royal officials. The book doesn't mention Jezebel. She may not be there with the prophets of Asherah, but it does mention the prophets of Baal. And oh, what a sight they would have been. They're in their robes, their ceremonial robes. They wore mirrors around their neck that would reflect the sun and shoot it off like like lightning that they said Baal controlled. And so you've got this pagan parade of 450 prophets of Baal, and then you've got Elijah, a party of one, and an unlikely one at that. Just a backwoods country boy from Tishbe. No fancy get-up, no cool mirrors or gear. Just a guy there, seemingly by himself, knowing that he has the Lord of hosts at his side. And so starting in verse 21, Elijah speaks. And he starts off by speaking to his own. He speaks to the sons of Israel. And he says something that is reminiscent of what jo- the warrior, king, warrior leader excuse me, Joshua had said hundreds of years previous. And Elijah says to the people, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. The Hebrew word hesitate here means to limp. So Elijah says, guys, how long are you going to limp back and forth between Baal and Yahweh? Cowboy up and make a decision. Make a choice. Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? And Jesus said something similar in Matthew chapter 6. He said, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other or he'll hold on to one and despise the other. He said, you cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and, and comfort. You cannot serve God and bail. You can't do it. And we, and we have a great example of this because at the end of the day, everyone must choose. And if you go about 10 miles downtown, you come to a little place that is much smaller than you think it was going to be called the Alamo. And it was there that, that Colonel Barrett, William Barrett Travis supposedly drew that line and said, if you're, uh, if you're committing to defend this place, cross this line. And we're going to roll together. We're going to die together defending freedom. 
So Elijah's drawing a spiritual line in the sand. And he's calling on the Israelites to forsake their wandering, to quit limping back and forth between God and Baal, and to follow the true God, Yahweh. It's what you saw at baptism. It's one of the pictures and the beautiful things about baptism is it's people standing up in front of their family, in front of their church family, saying, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. I'm crossing that line. I'm identifying with his death. I'm identifying with his resurrection, and I'm committing to live for him. And so after challenging the people, Elijah now explains the challenge at hand. Verse 22 says, then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood. But put no fire under it and I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call in the name of your God. I will call in the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, sounds like a good idea. We're game. And so Elijah says, well, there's 450 of y'all, so you go first. And so the prophets of Baal go first, and nothing happens. So they think, maybe we're not doing enough. So as we see in verse 27, it says, it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, call out with a loud voice, for he is a God. Either he is occupied or gone aside. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. So they, crowd with a loud, they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Now we live in, in San Antonio. And for you to be a true San Antonian, you have to be a Spurs fan, right? It's not part of our doctrinal statement at Wayside. But if San Antonio had a doctrinal statement, being a Spurs fan would be on it. And one of the things we love about our Spurs is they don't talk trash. They just play the game, right? I mean, think about the great players. David Robinson, Tim Duncan, Kawhi Leonard, our guy Monty Williams, right? Think of the great Spurs. Coach Pop, let's just, say that, let's just say that Elijah could not play for Coach Pop because he's talking some serious garbage. He's talking serious noise. You see, in the ancient Near East, if a person did not worship an idol, he at least took its status as a god for granted. You understand? It was the, it was the decorum of the day. It was the polite thing to do. And Elijah's having no part in that. Elijah refuses to acknowledge Baal as a god at all. Furthermore, he ruthlessly mocks Baal and his followers. He suggests that the reason Baal has not shown up is because he is occupied. Literal, the literal rendition in Hebrew, okay, he is relieving himself. Elijah says, dude, he's in the restroom. Just don't worry about it. And then he says, no, no, he's not in the restroom. He's out on a journey. He's on a journey. You see, the Baal followers believed that Baal accompanied Phoenician sailors when they went out on a journey. So Elijah says, dude, they're, they're just out on a ship. He's out on a ship. Give him time. 
He says, no, no, no. He's probably not out on a journey. He's probably asleep. Just yell louder. Just yell louder and he'll wake up. That should do the trick, guys. And this takes place for six hours. And these prophets of Baal, they rant and they rave and they cut themselves to no avail. And all they are left with in the end is bodies that are mutilated and a faith that has been completely humiliated. What a scene. And as we ponder this scene, I'm reminded of the important fact that true belief does not make something necessarily true. True belief does not make something true to life. These prophets of Baal, I would imagine, believed with all their heart that he would answer. I mean, they cut themselves all over the place to produce this. And yet they received nothing because it was a lie. And because true belief does not make something true to life, no matter how hard or how sincerely you believe. And there are numerous examples of this. I mean, as we celebrate Memorial Day, and one of the things I I think about in my life, of course, is the events of 9-11. Like many of you, I know exactly where I was that day. I was a freshman in college at St. Mary's University. I saw it in the Diamondback Cafe on the television. And I remember being so shocked by what I was seeing. And then later that day, completely shocked by the fact that it was celebrated in some parts of the world. That there were those who celebrated and that we come to find out that those who were flying the planes thought what they were doing was noble and good and true. But we would say it's not. It was evil. My second senior year at A&M, I I was a history major. And and my second senior year, I took uh, a class on Nazi Germany by Dr. Arnold Kramer. And Dr. Kramer brought in uh, a Holocaust survivor in this little small group. And we're talking to this guy, and one of the things he talked about was how the Nazis he dealt with in the concentration camps, how clear it was that what they thought they were doing was morally righteous, that it was good. And yet we would say that is absolutely evil. And Christians are not immune to this. It pains me when I read some folks who used to defend the practice of slavery and defend the mistreatment of slaves by quoting Bible verses. And they thought what they were doing was, man, that is what God wants us to do, and we are honoring him in that. And I think we look back on that with a very different perspective than they did. And so no matter how much you might believe something, it doesn't necessarily make it true. And Christianity is no exception. It's what we talked about on Easter. If Jesus did not die and rise from the dead, then we're wasting our time no matter how good it makes us feel to sing songs. It doesn't matter. He has to rise from the dead. And Christianity requires faith. It requires belief. There's no doubt about that. But it is not a blind faith. It is not a blind belief. 
It's a faith rooted in history. We believe that the Jesus of the scriptures is the Jesus of history. And the one who died on the cross rose from the grave. And the apostles who were too cowardly to be near him at his death willingly went to theirs. Because they said, I have seen the resurrected Lord. And what the prophets of Baal discovered that fateful day at Mount Carmel is that not all beliefs are equal. Not all beliefs are equal. It's not true belief that makes one right. It's right belief in that which is true. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And after six hours of chanting and cutting and crying and wailing, it's now Elijah's turn. Verse 30. It says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. So the first thing Elijah does is he repairs the altar to the Lord. It's in disarray, just like Israel. And he puts the 12 stones, representing the 12 tribes, and also declaring there is one Israel, not two kingdoms. He's reminding them who they are. And then in verse 33, he arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. What's three times four? Twelve. He's reminding them of who they are. They are Israel. And Yahweh is the God of Israel, the one true God. We all need reminders. And Elijah also wants no excuses. We're filling it with water. And, he's go- and, and God's going to take care of it. God's going to burn it up. Verse 36, at the time of sacrifice, 3 p.m., the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, who are they? It's Israel. Let it be known today that you are God and Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It is one of the great moments in history. Certainly one of the great moments in Scripture. One of those times where, as Colossians 1 tells us, the God who holds everything together, the God who created all, enters in in a unique way to his creation and performs what is known as a miracle, something that goes against the laws of nature. And there are many miracles in Scripture, but as you, if you really study it, there's three periods that stand out. There's three miraculous periods that stand out. It's Moses and Joshua. It's Elijah and Elisha. And it's Jesus and the apostles. 
So three unique times where God is just doing miracle after miracle. And that's what he does here. It defies the laws of nature. And that's okay because God is God overall. And so there the fire comes and everything is put to dust. And Israel experiences repentance they had not experienced in a long time. And then in verse 40 says, Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized him and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. I haven't told my Elijah to do that. Okay, just so you, we're holding off. Now this may seem somewhat rough, right? This may cause you to sit back and go, whoa. And if that does, then good. You see, at the time... Israel was governed by the law of Moses. This was, their, this was their constitution, so to speak. And in that constitution, in Deuteronomy 18, false prophets were to be killed. Because God is really keen on the purity of his people and the problems that false prophets present as they tear his people away from him. And so these prophets of Baal are done away with. And after finishing with them, Elijah now turns to Ahab. And this is what he says. Go eat and drink, for there's the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. This is an intense posture of prayer. He said, go look toward the sea. And his servant told him, there's nothing there. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started falling and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. Then the power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Like I said, I love Elijah. The guy's had a pretty full day, would you not say? Part of this epic duel. God uses him to call down fire from heaven. They slaughter 450 prophets of Baal. He prays for rain. And then he puts on his Nikes and runs like a half marathon to Jezreel in the rain. And what happens, though, is after three and a half years of extreme drought... Not only physically and spiritually, but spiritually. Israel repents. And God's grace rains down on the people of Israel. And then the clouds open up and God rains down rain from the clouds over the nation of Israel. And the drought is finally over. And as we sit here this morning, the reality is we're a long way from Mount Carmel, right? both in time and in distance. And yet the challenge is still the same. And Elijah's challenge is still the same. If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Who's it going to be? And it should come as no surprise to you that the commandment our Savior gave the most during his ministry on earth was what? Follow me. Follow me. 
we will probably never have a chance to see fire rain down from heaven. But we will most certainly have the opportunity to walk through the fire here on earth. And so whether it's a one-on-one with a friend or a 450 against one who are not, remember the events of Mount Carmel. Remember what God did. Remember how he used Elijah and remember the name of Elijah, which means my God is the Lord. My God is Yahweh. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of hosts. And no matter what fire we're in, in him we have nothing to fear. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this morning and for the testimonies that we heard in baptism, the life transformation you have brought about in the life of Vaishli, in the life of Colin, in the life of Nicole. God, we thank you for calling them to to yourself, revealing yourself to them. We thank you for the faith that they have placed in you and the new creations that they are. And God, we, we also confess to you that we turn to idols so often in our life. And God, you give us reminders through your word, through your people, through your spirit that you have given us to turn from the idols, to turn to you and follow you. And Father, if there's anyone in here who's never taken that step of faith, never believed upon God the Son who took on flesh, fully God, fully man, born in a manger, died on a cross, risen from the grave, ascended on high, coming again to judge the living and the dead. The one who died for our sins is the Lamb of God. God, if there's anyone here who's not taken that step of faith, Lord, would you stir their heart and cause them to believe. And so, Lord, we praise you. We praise you for the spirit that you have given us that leads us unto life that points us to the Son, to the glory of the Father as we worship you in all things. And so, Lord, we praise you this morning. We thank you for the life of Elijah and how he's so human. We're going to find out next week. He goes from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. He's not perfect. He is perfectly used by you in his broken humanness. And, Lord, we ask that you would do the same with us. Lord, we commit this morning to you for your glory in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.